Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalanorkas. Formula One's 2020 Bahrain Grand Prix took place today at the Sikir Circuit. Lewis Hamilton beat Max Verstappen to the win, but the race was really overshadowed by a horrifying crash for Haas driver Romain Grosjean, who survived his car bursting into flames after being sent into the barriers on lap one, following contact with AlphaTauri driver Daniel Kvyat. The race was red flagged immediately after the accident, and thankfully it soon emerged that Grosjean had been able to escape the inferno and was being treated by the FIA's medical crew, who played a vital part in his escape from the fire. Grosjean was taken to the track's medical centre and was then airlifted to hospital, from which he was assessed to have suffered no broken bones, but does have burns to his hands and ankles. It goes without saying, we wish him well in his recovery and express our sincere relief at seeing him survive the accident. After a delay of 1 hour and 20 minutes as the barriers were repaired, actually replaced with concrete blocks, the race restarted with another grid start where Hamilton was able to again easily lead away. Things quickly boiled down to a two-horse race between the Mercedes driver and Verstappen, with Hamilton appearing to have things under control. The second stint was the biggest moment of danger for Hamilton as he had to match Verstappen's pace on the hards while looking after his softer mediums. They both ended up on the hards after their second stops, after which Verstappen closed in despite his own stop being a slow one. But he never got within three seconds of the Mercedes driver up front and Red Bull in fact opted to pit the Dutchman for a third time given he had a large gap in hand over Sergio Perez behind. Perez was in third after Valtteri Bottas had made a poor initial start and slipped backwards at turn one, which appeared to spark a series of smaller incidents that ended later with Grosjean's crash, which is of course not to say that there was any blame in any of them. Perez had done a fine job to run clear of Alex Albon in the second Red Bull, and he looked set for a second successive podium until his engine let go with just four laps remaining. The race therefore finished under the safety car, with Hamilton taking his 11th win of the campaign, while Albon completed the podium. So, 
Joining me to discuss all of that and more on Zoom tonight are motorsport.com's F1 editor Jonathan Noble, Autosport's F1 reporter Luke Smith and GP Racing's executive editor Stuart Codling. Now, Codders, I'm going to come to you first because you and I were in uh, pretty constant communication throughout the early stages of that race as we were sort of trying to piece together what was going on. Once we knew that Roman Grosjean was all right, we were obviously trying to do that to make sure our our race report on autosport.com and motorsport.com was as accurate as it accurate as it could be. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to come to you first, just just if you don't mind, do you think you could you could talk us through the first start and how that ended up with uh, with Grosjean's crash at the end of it? I could almost look through a transcript of our WhatsApp messages, couldn't I? Because um, yeah, it 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 wasn't very pleasant work actually, and 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 not particularly nice to to do it at the time, given that. We, we began the process um, before we knew what had happened actually to Roman and before we knew he was okay, we were starting to pick over some of the details leading up to the accident. And, and like you say, it's it's one of those shunts that is an accumulation of small events and people doing things that, that builds towards a conclusion. And, and it does start with Valtteri Bottas having a slow getaway. He seemed to get away when the lights went out. He got away perfectly well. But then in the second phase, acceleration, not so much. And... Uh, he wasn't the only person. Ocon was slow away. He was passed by Norris and, and Gasly. Um, Albon and Perez and then Ricardo got past Bottas. And, and that just meant that you, you sort of had this situation where in Bahrain, three cars can go through turn one abreast, but only really one or two can get through turn two abreast. So that there's a na- that's a natural funnel point, that sort of vestibule between turn one and, and turn two. So, so you had basically people sorting things out with each other. Um, just, just looking at my notes, there's, there's squeezes all the way down the field. And so I, I suppose you have Lewis getting a clean getaway, um, Verstappen going through as well. And then Albon sort of makes it stick, uh, and, and, and gets through and, you have Ricardo and Albon sort of um, alongside each other and, and sorting it out between themselves. That causes Bottas to slightly check his pace maybe a little bit through through turn two. And then further back, you have Squeezes, you have Leclerc, Vettel and Stroll, who are also three abreast through um, turn one. Leclerc got a poor getaway and then sent it very deeply into turn one. So you have an awful lot of people who are trying to make up ground having got a poor start. So you have the situation where Bottas seems to be balked a little bit as, as Albon get, gets ahead of Ricardo. Um, Norris taps Gasly. Um, Science has to get out of the throttle to uh, avoid that squeeze at, at turn two with 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 Norris having to check up ahead of him. Vettel, who's then arriving kind of three abreast uh, with Stroll on his right, Leclerc on his right, has to check very hard to avoid running into the back of what's ahead of him. He jinks right, Stroll goes right. And and that then creates a scenario where there's a lot of slow-moving traffic and Grosjean arrives at that scene, um, sees all those cars slowing ahead. You have Raikkonen going off track on the left in an attempt to go around the sort of the slightly slower moving cars. And, and, and I think Grosjean naturally, in the heat of the moment, goes to the right, um, maybe sort of either forgetting or not observing that Kvyat, his, his sort of five o'clock almost, and, and Kvyat's only there because he's been in a squeeze with with the um, 
Alfa Romeo's and he's been slowed down because he's had to pretty much go over the apex at turn one to avoid clonking into uh, Magnussen, if, if, if my notes reflect this ag- accurately. So all those circumstances kind of build into, into what we saw happen, a, a very, very fiery accident and one that was very scary. Indeed it was. Um, before we come on to talk about you know the really terrifying part the car being on fire and Grosjean having to escape the inferno. Um, Luke, I wonder if we could just come to you. What is the latest information we have at the time of recording about Grosjean's condition in hospital? So Grosjean, as we'd have seen on the world feed, he was obviously transported from the, uh, initially sat in the medical car, then taken into the ambulance and taken to the medical centre. And uh, he was quick, they were quick to report that he had some burns to his hands and his ankles. And uh, then Haas reported that he was being taken to the Bahrain military hospital with uh, suspected broken ribs. And uh, they've then conducted all of the x-rays and all of the checks required at the hospital and found that he's got no broken bones, which is uh, really good news. And the diagnosis they've come back with is that he's got uh, burns to the back of both of his hands. So that obviously will require some treatment. He's going to remain in hospital overnight so they can complete that treatment and uh, keep him under observation, basically, to make sure everything is OK. But uh, Roman, he's in good spirits. He spoke to Gunter Steiner. He's spoken to his family on the phone as well. And uh, then he also put a video up on Instagram uh, a couple of hours ago, which was really, really good to see. And he, he said, I'm OK. And he was like, well, not completely OK. And then showed his hands, which are kind of in these white gloves to look after them. And uh, But it seemed in, in very, very chipper and in very good spirits. And uh, he said he hoped that uh, he'd be able to reply to some of the messages and obviously the, the outpouring of support and love that he's got from the F1 community very, very soon. Uh, but yeah, it is. Uh, it was very very nice I think at the end of this day that we were able to see such sort of a positive and happy video from him and even if it's coming from hospital bed he's got a big smile on his face so that was uh, really really pleasing to see absolutely it was uh, it was immense relief first of all to see him in the medical car to know that he was out because I thought it was very interesting I thought um, the F1 TV director deserved a lot of credit certainly at the the very beginning of of what was going on in that long uh, that long red flag period I know there's there's a bit of um bit of dispute from some of the drivers about the amount of replays that were eventually shown but at the start at least they they cut away they didn't show anything until it was obviously clear that Grosjean was out of the car and at least at that point was okay which I thought was very commendable and but John coming to you can you just explain to us what happened with Grosjean in the barriers and in the fire how he got out and the the vital role as I said that the FIA's uh, safety crew the medical car crew played in in getting him out so um, yeah there's been endless replays there's there's angles from the helicopter there's a camera which i think is the most one of the most amazing sequences is from the other side of the track um at track level looking across uh and it looks like a um as the flames are going and the medical crew turns up it looks like a movie scene it looks like something from a hollywood blockbuster as uh the fire gets up and then the stunt man gets out of the flames and comes forward you can't believe that this is this is real and this is formula one but that's how it was. But the, the impact, the second the car impacted the barriers, um, the car split in half, the fuel lines were split open, and that's why we got the huge fireball. Uh, it was nine seconds was all it took between that, that fire starting and that, the medical car stopping on the scene. So a very swift response there. It was 17 seconds before the first fire extinguisher got to the flames. It was a marshal on, actually behind the barriers, got there first. Uh, and it was Dr. Ian Roberts who then arrived literally a second or two seconds later um, with another marshal who fumbled for a little bit to pull the pull the pin on the fire extinguisher but he started attacking the flames and just as he managed to push those flames back a little bit it was just as Roman kind of popped up over the barriers it was enough to give him his escape route 
Um, and that was 28, 29 seconds. So between the, the fire starting and Roman getting out. Uh, and you can see he was dazed. His visor was, Ian Roberts said, the visor had melted. Um, he was all confused. But Ian was there on van der Merve. The uh, medical car driver was there and they kind of led him away. Um, just those images are just incredible. Just, I mean, Roman probably can't take it, take it all in what's, what's happened to him. If you look at the photos closely, it looks like his left boot has either been burnt off or fell off in the, in the accident because he's got one sock on and one boot on. The overalls are covered in um, fire extinguisher and um, singed from the, from the flames. So just, just incredible, incredible scenes that I think we've not seen. I think we've got to go back to maybe Imola 89 for something similar when Gerhard Berger had this that big fiery crash in the early stages of the San Marino Grand Prix to see something as terrible as this. I thought it showed amazing presence of mind and you you kind of hope that if 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 any of us were ever in such a crisis situation we would have that presence of mind of Dr Ian Roberts rushing towards the scene but then seeing that the marshal was struggling with the fire extinguisher and st- just stopping to sort that out you know a lot, a lot of people would flap in similar circumstances but he was just incredibly cool and sorted that out and showed the marshal how to work the fire extinguisher and made sure it was deployed before he kind of carried on with his job it was remarkable it certainly was it was really interesting to hear ian roberts and alan van der merva talking afterwards they did you know the, the, the fia brought them they did all the tv stations they did a, a group uh, session with the journalists in the media center and and alan van der merva saying you know actually my, my, his first thought at that point it just shows you that, that you know the, the the mental capacity these guys have his one of his first thoughts was well, what happens if ian gets incapacitated because he's gone straight almost into the fire if he you know if, if the doctors if the main doctor goes down what happens then sort of thing but uh, Fortunately, everything worked out uh, very much for the best. And and really, a lot of people saying, including Grosjean himself, how well the halo did an excellent job in saving his life. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about what might have happened had it not been there. But still, question marks as well about what happened to the barrier. We know that motorsport is very, very dangerous. There's probably never going to be a completely foolproof solution, at least not one that we might be able to think of right now. But um, yeah, Codis, maybe coming back to you, what, what did you make of how all the, the safety... Uh, structures, the safety processes, how they all worked uh, at that first corner crash? I think it's very dangerous to speculate about um, whether barriers are working as they should because it's an inexact science and those barriers in that position are not necessarily designed to receive a racing car travelling at at that sort of speed and and at that sort of angle of impact. And I I did actually interview uh, a month or so back a a chap who works for one of the the main companies that that supplies the FIA and and certain circuits around the world with protective barriers. And it was a a very interesting conversation um, where he said that as car performance has gone up, the solution that a lot of... um, circuits and barrier manufacturers came up with was simply to sort of beef up the materials and beef up the mounting points with with the aim of, of kind of resisting any impact but what you actually want with an impact is for the the forces to be dispersed and so you don't actually necessarily want a hugely strong barrier that doesn't move because that doesn't actually disperse the forces you need the barrier to deform in a certain way so i I think it's a slightly inexact science and 
maybe this there, there will be some some lessons from the way that barrier behaved in in terms of future safety provisions and it was certainly an, an unanticipated accident and i rather hope that they will take a few lessons from it but you know we're, we're dealing with huge energies when when a racing car hits an, a supposedly immovable object so the i, I think what what people have to realize is that just beefing up the barriers and making them stronger doesn't actually contribute to safety because I think what what was it? It was a uh, 160, 170 miles an hour. The uh, he was going at the at the point of impact. I think one hundred and thirty-seven. So one hundred and thirty-seven. Um, when 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 a racing car hits uh, an object at one hundred and thirty-seven miles an hour, that's an awful lot of kinetic energy that has to be. And energy doesn't disappear. It has to turn into some other form of energy. It it it, it moves along. It ripples. So that the barrier has to deform and transfer the uh that energy of impact so maybe what we need to look at is a cleverer form of of barrier design but that that is a lesson that i i think we need to look at and maybe the 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 right authorities need to take stock over the winter and and make a a, a decision based on the evidence and not based on knee-jerk reactions to what people on the internet say should happen it's the same thing with with car, racing cars as well. I mean, it looks shocking that the, the rear of the car was one side of the barrier and the survival cell was the other, and there's virtually nothing left of many bits of it. But actually, cars breaking apart in a controlled manner are what you want, because every time that car's breaking apart and things are breaking, that's energy being dissipated. Um, all of those things happen in a in a set process. The crash structures at the side of the car are aimed to deform in a set way, which they did today. So all these, every element of that crash... Um, you know, happened in the way that it was designed to do in, in some respects. Um, the worst thing you can have is a, you know, a car that's so solid that then hits a really, really solid crash barrier uh, with a, a point of impact where then the only movable item within that racing car is the human body driving it. And then that's the thing that ends up getting broken. So every element of that crash was designed to protect just one thing. It didn't matter if all the rest of it fell apart to nothing all there to protect one element and that one element was Raymond Grosjean. Yeah, I was just saying to our producer before everyone joined in and and we hit record that this is one of the worst accidents I've seen since Mike Rockenfeller's shunt in the Audi at Le Mans when he was passing one of the GTE cars and and the guy either failed to spot him or misjudged the distance and he went into the barrier at a, a huge rate of knots and there was practically nothing left of the car but the safety stell that Rockenfeller was sitting in and it's it's an accident you don't see much of and one that sort of faded into history because it was dark at the time so there's 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 not that sort of video that people can share and look at and 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 draw lessons from but I remember at the time people saying well this is disgusting how can Audi make a car that just falls to pieces when it hits a barrier and that of course is is to completely misunderstand the physics of the situation that the car has to disintegrate progressively and dissipate those energies so that it doesn't go through the the human body that's sitting at the heart of it absolutely absolutely Codders. um well Luke, coming to you i mean as i said they they red flagged the race uh, i actually looked up at the clock it was after 36 seconds had taken place that's when the clock stopped uh brought the drivers into the pit lane and there was a long delay obviously first of all everyone understanding that Grosjean was okay and then being taken away from the incident and then the barrier itself being replaced. It was, it was fairly 
fairly quick, I would say that not not not, not in terms of like anything was rushed, but just in in terms of the process that, that obviously the race would would carry on once those uh, those repairs had taken place. But what 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 was the driver's reaction? What, what you know? What, how did they sort of cope with seeing? What had gone on because obviously there were there were replays on the the giant TV screen I think that's above the above the the the, the pit buildings and I think I also I imagine through their TV screens in the garages that their cars were lined up next to so yeah how did they uh, how did they find the red flag period? Uh yeah, as you say, there was a lot of replays shown. I think that's something that a lot of the drivers did struggle with, and uh, they were all obviously instructed to return to the pit lane. And then quickly, when it became clear that there was going to be quite a lengthy wait, they were got out of their cars and went to sort of rest in their rooms or take a comfort break or anything like that. But they did show the uh, they did show the replays a number of times, and for some of the drivers, that really that went too far. Daniel Ricciardo was very outspoken about it after the race. He said it was he called it disgusting. Uh, he said they were effing with our emotions and was he was really quite taken aback that they had shown those replays so often for all the drivers to see and it was all of the drivers did sort of share a, a sort of an unease about it Valtteri Bottas he said he watched it once to understand what had happened but then afterwards was trying to avoid it and just and just didn't want to see it again so it's it is always difficult I think he, regardless of what the delay is caused by when the drivers have got so in the zone for that race start and obviously it's the highest pressure point of the whole race weekend and then it's quickly red flags and they've got like an hour of waiting and sitting around it's very difficult for them to sort of like keep focused and keep in the right mindset let alone when you throw in an accident that was so horrific and so shocking that is a real sort of that's really difficult for all of them to to deal with and uh, Lewis Hamilton he spoke after the race about sort of the importance of staying in the right mindset and I've really got to stay focused uh, Toto Wolf he said it takes huge courage from the drivers to get back in the car and sort of put everything out of their mind after seeing such an accident but uh, yeah it was it was a lengthy wait it was uh, obviously all the barrier repairs had to be completed as you say I, I thought it was a very swift job indeed I think the wait was about an hour or so but full props to the to the team uh, at the FIA and Bahrain International Circuit for getting that all completed and uh, but the drivers did really sort of have to sort of mull things over and I think the fact that it was being shown so often whether or not for the fans for the general public you could argue that it's good in terms of sort of being informative and showing you sort of like the full extent of what actually happened in that accident for the drivers themselves you've then got to get back in the cars go back out there and race that is the absolute last thing in the world they want to see so i think it's uh yeah it's something that i imagine will be discussed and probably reviewed at least between the drivers and fom in terms of that exposure because i don't think it did any of them any good before they got back in the car well let's move on to sort of a one one last bit when we talk about this particular part of uh, of the race and what happens, um, John, how did the Haas team itself react? What was uh, Gunther Steiner saying? And obviously, it's very early to think about this, to consider this, but nevertheless, it's a question that's that's well worth asking. There's another race next weekend. What might happen uh, with with Grosjean Racing, or might they have to bring in a replacement? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think Gunther probably bigger sense of relief than anything else. I mean, it must be horrendous as a any team member to see this happen to your driver. Um, but I think it was quite swift. I think the first WhatsApp message we got from Haas uh, was, you know, within seconds of the accident aftermath happening when we got a message saying that he'd, they'd been informed that he was okay and was in the, the medical car. So um, I think a sense of relief that there was quite a quick response on that. Um, I think Gunter said this evening that a bit too early to, to ponder replacement driver Um I think the, the big issue would be whether Roman's hand injuries are enough to, you know, keep him out of a car. 
for next week. We know how how kind of tough racing drivers are, um, how quick they they can battle back. Um, some people have suggested that you know this could be it. This could be enough for him to decide that's it. I'm I'm done with Formula One. But I think racing drivers are different breeds. Sometimes that accidents are part and parcel of part and parcel of the job. Um, and it's like when you fall off a bicycle or fall off a horse, they often say that the best thing to do is jump straight back on and get out there again. So um, I'd be quite surprised if he decides that that's that's it. I'm not not going to be a racing driver anymore um, after today. And in terms of replacements, um, you know, whether they go for a young rookie, someone like uh, Pietro Fittipaldi, who's had a bit of experience, they could go down that route if he's got the necessary super license. Or they could, is super sub Nicker Hulkenberg sniffing around? Um, but they've only got a few days to, to sort this out. But I think it's something they'll wait to see how Roman develops over the next 24, 40 hours. And then I think they'll make the call. Yeah, I think a lot of it will depend on Roman's mindset, and I think that if he if he did turn around to the team and say, "Look, I'm done. I don't I don't want to do it anymore," they would fully respect that that obviously, and it would. Uh, I don't think anyone would begrudge him of that. But as you say, racing drivers are quite a, a unique breed, and they do tend to want to sort of be back in the car and to sort of tackle their fears as much as they can. And I think Roman, he's always been someone who's very, I think, mindful of the sort of mental aspects of F1. And he spoke a couple of weeks back, actually, as a feature editor for GP Racing, talking about sort of the, the mental side of F1 and how he... Um, how he Collars enjoyed that plug. <laughs> and how uh, how he's been working with a mind coach ever since his accident at Spa in 2012. And he, he continues to do that to this day, to work with someone who sort of like talks about his mental state. And he said it's helped him become not only a better driver, but a better husband, a better father. And I think that of all the drivers in terms of dealing with such a, I guess, a mental setback and quite quite a traumatic episode, like undoubtedly for whoever's involved, I think Roman is someone who can really, I think he can deal with that and tackle with that. So I think that that hopefully bodes well and that hopefully he's, his hands are healed enough that he is able to get back in the car and have his sort of final two race swung on, at least from Haas, probably from Formula 1 altogether. Um, as John said, in terms of replacements, I think it's it's hard to say. Uh, Gunter, he spoke this evening and said, Look, I don't really want to talk about it because the focus is I'll see Roman tomorrow in the hospital and then we'll go from there. But he said there's always backup plans. Uh, I don't believe either Fittipaldi or Louis Delatraz, the other Haas reserve, have the necessary super license points. That would maybe open the door for, for Anika Hulkenberg. Uh, would Mick Schumacher, who already has a super license, would Haas dare go a little bit earlier than anticipated? I don't know. But it's uh, it's all hypothetical stuff. But I think the, the main thing is that uh, I think Roman, we hope that we'll see him back in the car next weekend, mentally and physically fit to race. Indeed, and I think you touched on an interesting point there, Luke, about the fact that we suspect this probably will be Roman Grosjean's last two races in Formula 1, considering he was already out of the Haas team and, and probably out of the championship as well at the end of the season. So perhaps that will be a factor in, in whether he comes back or not. But whatever happens, we hope that the right decision is taken and that it's, uh, it's all done in his best interest and whatever he's happy with as well. But um, let's move on to talking about the rest of the race, which did take place. Uh, I thought it was very, very interesting uh, to hear Max Verstappen speaking afterwards, clearly not very impressed at Red Bull's strategy, particularly when it came to the first round of pit stops where Mercedes pitted first and uh, Verstappen and Perez came in a lap later. Now, what's interesting is the undercut was actually quite powerful here, which I think we, we saw a lot later on when Red Bull did seem to take the initiative a little bit more. And even after Verstappen's really, really slow second stop, he still amazingly got the gap that was about five seconds before he came in to down, down to just uh, just over three. 
even though he'd been stationary for three three seconds longer than he needed to be. So it really did show the power of the undercut. But he was he wasn't very happy with Red Bull uh, in the press conference. So Luke, coming to you because I know you went to Christian Horner's uh, media session. What was the team's response about why they they'd chosen the the route that they did on strategy? Uh, so yeah, Christian Horner explained. He said that if they'd have uh, pitted him earlier as Max would have wanted, that he'd have come out in traffic, and that would have compromised them even more so he said they were kind of sort of forced to pit when they did basically and uh, he said that the fact there were these eight laps at the beginning that were obviously under the safety car and essentially lost uh, because of uh, not only the, the first lap incident but then the uh, subsequent uh, role for Lance Stroll and the safety car that followed when the race did eventually resume that uh, kind of eight eight laps out of the race and that meant that a sort of like optimal three-stop strategy which it sounded like from what Horner was saying that Red Bull were leaning towards that kind of went out the window and it pushed it more towards a two stop and obviously Red Bull did go for the three stops in the end really to sort of push home for that fastest lap point but uh, yeah he said that it would have been it would have been that Max would have come out into traffic he'd have then had to pass a couple of cars and then that would have sort of lost the opportunity to undercut so it kind of what was the point of doing it but uh, yeah as you say Max less than impressed about it but uh, Horner said that it's something that they'll obviously review and they talked about with Max but he was uh, quite comfortable with the decisions that uh, Red Bull took on that front. Yeah John what did you make of Verstappen's reaction because uh, you know generally he doesn't see he hasn't seemed too bothered to to be finishing second uh, this season because he just knows how good uh, Mercedes is you know, and it's better than finishing third behind the two of them. But he was—he wasn't—he clearly wasn't very happy with what Red Bull had done. Do you think that was an indication that he thought he really could win this race going in? Yeah, I think there's a difference between finishing second, thirty seconds, kind of down the road, and the the way you've had no chance of battling the race leader, and finishing second. I know the the gap at the end was well, it, it was falsely small because of the safety car, and then falsely big because he'd had the the pit stop. But it would have been five six seconds ultimately. Um, if the race had played out. But I think it, it was a small enough gap for Max to have felt today that there was a chance to perhaps push the Mercedes, maybe corner them a little bit on strategy. Um, Max had the benefit of a new hard tyre in the race, which Mercedes didn't have. Um, so they had some slightly different options to um, Mercedes going into the into the race. So, And it was clear there was a radio message early on about, you know, we're going we're gonna to send it today and we're going to, kind of do some stuff we aren't normally going to do so I think what what they felt they weren't going to potentially beat Mercedes on pure pace on the being on the same tyre doing the same thing they needed to do something different and the way to do something different was to be aggressive um, and push on a bit and also wonder if um, there were some comments from Max after Alex Albon who finished on the podium today um, but Max said well nothing special because he was you know ultimately probably 30 seconds behind me but again it's that problem Red Bull has of it needs a rear gunner for Max because by not having the second Red Bull car that's you know shadowing Max even five seconds back or ten seconds back what that does is it leaves the door open for Mercedes to run their own strategy um, it can't be the disrupting force that they need to be so I do wonder if Max's comments to Alex were fueled by him not having those strategic options that would have been there if Alex had been there protecting him yeah sometimes you feel that Red Bull know that they have a power to panic Mercedes into making a pit stop. Very often they'll they'll bring Max in and Mercedes will will react. And this was a race where that didn't happen. And so I, I wonder if on the pit wall they thought, oh right, well we've fired a shot and they haven't fired back. They must have something in the pocket. And that sort of slightly took the impetus out of them. And it was kind of only only at the end when Lewis said 
you know, oh, well, that was really difficult. I was struggling. I was sliding the tyres a lot. They sort of revised their opinion from the, well, well, we, we got the most we could out of the car today to, oh, well, actually, maybe we've missed a trick. Indeed, it was interesting. I asked uh, both Verstappen and Hamilton about their sort of approaches to those tyres because we know, we know how key that is in Formula 1. You either you either take the approach that Verstappen did, which was give it everything, even though he knew that he'd be sacrificing tyre life at the end of the stints, um, or, or do what Hamilton did, which was basically protect his tyres during the early stages. And John, as you said, with the, the extra set of hards that Verstappen had, Hamilton had to be really careful on the medium tyres because if he pushed too hard too early on, he really was going to end up in trouble. Um, but yeah, Codders, maybe, maybe coming back to you, what did you make of, of what Hamilton did there? Because it just looked, as I said, it looked like he had everything under control, but there was elements of danger that he just again used his tyre management superiority to be able to, to come away ahead. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Very often in races where it kind of looks like he's making imperious uh, progress that his radio messages have a sort of a certain sense of urgency to them as if it's kind of like the whole swan thing where you know you see the top half gliding across the water you don't see the 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 feet paddling furiously underneath whereas this was a race where you didn't actually see any cracks in the facade for quite a long time it was only at the end where he was starting to question the wisdom of the team not bringing him in for a final pit stop um when the safety car pitted and and I, I got the impression at that point that they were, if if not snookered, they were probably thinking, well, actually, maybe we should have done, but now that time has passed because they said, well, we're actually, we're, we're marginal. Uh, let me just have a look at my notes now. Did they say marginal or critical? I've got pages of it notes It's marginal, here. marginal. It's marginal. They said, uh, basically, when Mercedes says something is marginal, that's basically the red lights flashing and ow, 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 we're in trouble. So um, that, that, that to me said that if... If the safety car period had been a couple of laps earlier, then maybe they would have been in trouble uh, for the for the final thing. So, in the final analysis, you have to say that that Lewis um, was quite fortunate to be able to finish behind the safety car because uh, had had Perez's engine blown a couple of laps earlier, things might have panned out a little differently. Indeed, indeed. Well, Luke, coming to you, let's talk about Valtteri Bottas, as God has already described uh, what happened at the very start of the race, but. He was he was sort of unlucky again, as he always seems to be. This certainly this season by picking up a puncture during the first safety car, and then actually, in actual fact, I think he had a second puncture during the, the final safety car, right at the very end. But that first puncture really, really did for his race. Dropped him down to sort of sixteenth uh, at the at the restart, and then sorry, the second restart, the safety car restart, and then uh, and then he had to recover from there. But he didn't seem initially to be making much progress. So I asked you to to just we could get an explanation of that from Bottas himself during his media session. So. What what was his explanation for why he was sort of seemingly stuck at one point behind an Alfa Romeo and then a Williams, which are two cars really the Mercedes should be breezing past with ease, even if it isn't very good. You know, maybe it's not the best car at following others, but you'd certainly expect them um, to get by those two. So yeah, what was going on there? Yeah, it was quite surprising, wasn't it? There was even a point when he was stuck behind George Russell. And I was sort of thinking, oh, this will get the, the fire going for anyone wanting to see Russell in a, in a Mercedes in the future. But uh, no, I asked Bottas about it after the race and he said basically they were thinking at that point that they could maybe make a one-stop strategy work. So really save the tyres, not work them too hard early on. But uh, it quickly became clear that he was uh, losing so much time stuck behind those cars that it wasn't really possible to make that strategy work. So uh, in the end, had to sort of uh, push on and just deal with the tyre management and having to make 
make the additional pit stops. But another, yeah, just another very unlucky race for Bottas. Like he's uh, he's been pretty rotten on luck this season. I know he does get a lot lots of criticism, but it has felt like all of the issues that Mercedes have faced have been on his car and not on Lewis Hamilton's. And Toto Wolff said after the race that if Bottas wasn't the sort of strong mental character he is that that driver might be questioning why always me why is it never the other car is there something going on there but he said he knows Valtteri is much too strong to ever sort of have such thoughts or anything like that and uh, yeah Valtteri was quite sort of just accepting of it after the race as well he joked that there's uh, been a black cat uh, near his place in Monaco that he's been feeding and he's like there'll be no more food for that black cat which is uh, probably for the best but uh, Cod is outraged at that the idea of not feeding cats <laughs> well yeah I just I just, I just wanted to establish, Codders, it wasn't used that asked him the question about the black cats in the press conference, was it? It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't me, no, because I, of course, I, I feed a white and black cat and a black and white cat in, in our household. Um, but in, in my notes, I, I wrote Bottas colon naked gun because um, his his fortunes in the race today reminded me of so, so you know, older older listeners may appreciate this uh, in in the opening uh, reel of the film Naked Gun you see OJ Simpson's character basically get shot and then he sort of leans back puts his puts his hand back to to sort of stop himself falling uh, and burns his hand on a on a stove and he's basically bouncing around this room injuring himself having been shot before he finally falls over the side of this boat in this hilarious comic sequence but um it the Valtteri Bottas's chain of misfortunes just put me in mind of that that's a good na- band name isn't it Valtteri Bottas's <laughs> chain of misfortune yes <laughs> <laughs> it also very accurately sums up his 2020 season I think uh, very good there uh Cutters, you'll be you'll be you'll be interest, interested to know that I got a Blackadder reference into last night's podcast that very nearly didn't get published because a certain someone me made a bit of a catastrophic error when it came to sending the audio file uh, but fortunately, we got available in that. And don't worry, I will fully reveal what that error was in our season review uh, podcast when I shall reveal all the other ridiculous and hilarious errors I've made this season, including that big one. In oh, are we going to have a blooper reel? Yeah, oh yeah, they're good. I mean, you know a few of them from testing about the, the, the meal in Melbourne. Anyway, we'll, we'll save it for that podcast. We won't let the listeners uh, know my complete lack of, my complete utter stupidity uh, at this stage anyway. Uh, but John, let, let's let's go on to talk about uh, Alex Albon and, and Sergio Perez as well, because obviously a lot of interest in them even coming into this race because of the speculation that maybe Perez is going to go to Red Bull. He's called a press conference on Monday. What's that's going to be about? Albon does get another podium. He's second in Formula One, but Verstappen, as you, as you say, is sort of alluding to the fact that you know he was really far behind him. Um, but first of all, what a good drive from Sergio Perez, and so unfortunate to have it undone in the way it was. Yeah, Perez has just you know hit, hit hit his peak form really. It should 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 have been two podiums from two races, which um, would have been incredible. He's pretty much single handedly, uh, possibly three and three. I'll just jump in there because if you think about Imola as well. Uh, where they're, they, you know, pitting him under the safety car really cost him against Ricardo. But anyway, sorry to interrupt. John. But um, yeah, he's single-handedly kind of hauling racing point to that third place battle in the Constructors' Championship. I think Lance Stroll scored two points since the Italian Grand Prix, which is, you know, incredible um, really for him. But yeah, Serge's on fire. He knows that it's Red Bull or nothing for him next season. Um, all he can do is keep doing exactly what he's doing at the moment. Um keep firing away, keep driving like he's driving right now. You know, terrible, terrible luck. Um, but if anyone's expecting him to make an announcement on Monday about his future, I think you'll be disappointed. Um, from what I understand, it's not a 
press conference announce anything as such. It's just that he normally has a bit of a catch-up um, meeting, briefing with Mexican journalists or um, Spanish-speaking media, uh, which has been delayed because obviously he caught COVID, was out for two races and um, quite compressed calendar. It just so happens that they'll do it Monday here in Bahrain because it fits in because everyone's hanging around in the Middle East for three weeks. So um, I don't think there'll be any, any set announcement on that front. And as far as Alex goes, um, you know, on paper, you'd say qualifying fourth, finishing third was a, a good weekend for him. But I don't think it was as strong as he needs to be doing, really. It was, Rebels talked about, you know, needing a driver who can qualify within three tenths of Max. Alex was six tenths back in qualifying. And in the race, as Max rightly pointed out, the gap was still big. Alex wasn't in the position to be um, that disruptive force that they need to be battling with the Mercedes drivers. He would have finished fourth if... Paris hadn't had that failure at the end. So I don't think it was, definitely wasn't enough for Alex to completely stake his claim to that Red Bull seat next year. I still think he needs to do more, needs to do something much, much better in the final two races. Yeah, I was listening to the commentary of a certain channel where the lead commentator name redacted. suggested that this, yeah, name redacted, suggested that... Um, this this podium was was really Alex Albon staking his claim over Sergio Perez uh, for for the the Red Bull seat, and quite frankly, you know, I've I've heard a lot of people say some very stupid things this year, but quite frankly, that that's nearly that's in contention for a podium of stupid things I've heard said recently. Because um, let's face it, inheriting a podium position doesn't really stake any claim to anything. Good for him. But at the end of the day, he inherited a position because someone's engine blew up, or their, um, you know, they, they had a, an ERS failure. So, quite frankly, if no. If I may put up a slight defence for Alex Albon, because no, it wasn't it wasn't the kind of display that you really do need from your your second driver at Red Bull, and no, he wasn't the the thorn in Mercedes side that he said he wanted to be after qualifying. But it was, I felt it was a step forward in what we've seen recently. And I don't know if that says more about his recent form or what, but I I thought it was a very fuss-free, trouble-free display. Didn't make any big mistakes. Made the overtakes he needed to make. Probably should have been a bit closer to Perez. Definitely should have been a bit closer to Perez, given the, the capabilities of that Red Bull car. And yeah, the gap to Verstappen was very, very big. But I think it was, there were some good points you could pick out of that. And I think there were a few races where there really weren't any good points at all. Like, it was really, really quite poor. But I think there are quite a few positives he can take away. Uh, Christian Orner, he said after the race that Red Bull won't be making any decision on its driver lineup being confirmed until after the end of the season. So Alex has got two more races to, as John says, sort of put in that display that really does stake a claim for that seat and say, look, this is mine. But I think today was today felt like a step in the right direction. Um, Alex, I don't know how he's going to fare in your driver ratings, but I wouldn't imagine it's too disgraceful. The driver ratings, it's yes. A, it's a tough one, this one, because as you say, Luke, it, it, there have been much, much worse races for Albon this season. But I think the, the really damning thing in it is that he was comprehensively beaten by a slower car in Sergio Perez before the engine issue and that's that's like yeah okay you know yeah he was he was quite far away from Verstappen but he was behind Perez and I think that's that's really going to cost him also, also there was the fairly you know the massive crash in FP2 okay didn't have an effect on the rest of the weekend but that that was that was another down note but anyway I, of course yeah of course <laughs> I do I do take fatally your, wounded well, him potentially but I well, anyway anyway um uh, I I do take your point in that yes he's done he's done good things this weekend but still some some negative stuff when he needs to be all 
all excellent, let's face it. Um, well, let's come on to a team that did, did have a very excellent result, and that's McLaren Codders. Excellent points in the fight for P3. And it was amazing seeing, it's, it's a bit like Turkey, how the, that fight is just swinging around the momentum between the teams, even in races. At the start in Turkey, obviously racing point up front, then Renault looked like they were going to have a great race, and it all went wrong at the first corner. And here, Renault sort of qualifying really well, and Perez is in amongst it at the first corner. He looks like he's going to be on the podium. Then his car blows up and McLaren are suddenly the lead Class B runners in fourth and fifth. And and also hats off to Carlos Sainz Jr. because I did not think anybody could make those soft tyres work. And he really did. He really used them for a very, very long time and did excellently well. So yeah, how did McLaren uh, come out on top of the Class B battle? Uh, yeah, Carlos, um, at, at, as the vernacular goes, smoked the cigar down to the stub with those soft tyres, didn't he? He really, really did make them last for... What, more than 20 laps? I'm going to have to go through my notes again. But yeah, end of lap 21, he um, pitted to put on the medium. So remarkable amount of life he squeezed out of the, the softs, which looked to be a, a ridiculous and outre strategy. I suppose, to be fair, we, we have to say that neither of the Renaults made brilliant starts, um, certainly at the first uh, start and then at the restart, um, not brilliant. And then they ended up fighting each other on track there was the the general impression that um, uh, the the team had to step in and and separate them almost and impose team orders to to, to swap the order around because Ricardo was lobbying to be allowed past Ocon. Ocon seemed to be making a little bit of heavy weather on 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 one set of tyres, but even then, after pitting to change them, um, didn't really seem to be able to make any more headway. And and yeah, this this is one of those races where some some people just seem to have all the bad luck. Um, McLaren it, it seemed to fall their way a little bit. Um, Norris didn't do you know he could quite easily have been eliminated in that little knock with with Gasly at the beginning. Um, didn't lose too many positions. And and Science you know we had we saw him have a slow pit stop as well and end up behind Leclerc and screaming down the team radio saying that you know this this is terrible. He he then makes very short work of Leclerc. Leclerc pits out the way anyway, as if as if he was barely there, just disappearing into the mist. So yeah, a, a very very good race always round for them from from the strategists through to the the drivers actually making it work. And I kind of to me it it feels like a team that's rediscovering its its confidence. I interviewed Andreas Seidel for a forthcoming GP Racing magazine feature <laughs> the other week, and and I said to him, it it does feel that. You you guys are able to be a little bit more racy at the moment. You you sort of you have the confidence to back yourselves and maybe to do strategies that are a little bit more risky, and that you have faith in the the driver's ability to execute that. And more often than not, it comes out right, and 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 that's what happened today. Indeed, because I hope you noticed noticed that both Luke and I smiled when you used the phrase heavy weather. <laughs> Because obviously we are both imagining your uh, <laughs> Patrick Head impression. The Patrick Head impersonation. Always, always a favourite on the Autosport podcast. Um, well, guys, I think we'd better leave it there. It is getting rather late in Bahrain. It's half past one in the morning and I still have to do the Autosport magazine and Autosport Plus race report, plus drive ratings, plus maybe a column as well. So I'm going to call time, as it were. Uh, a fair few things we didn't get to cover, but uh, such, is, such is life when it's uh, a very... Uh, a very action-packed, dramatic, and, and thankfully not tragic race. 
Uh, so anyway, thank you very much to the three of you for coming on the podcast tonight. And thank you to everybody listening along. Now, just before we go, we'd like to remind you that the latest issue of Autosport magazine came out on Thursday and is available on the supermarket shelves and in newsagents, as well as on the doormats of subscribers. There'll be a new issue of the magazine for you to pick up every Thursday, packed full of news, analysis and the usual stunning photography. And of course, if you want unlimited access to Autosport from the comfort of your home, visit autosport.com slash plus to find out how to subscribe to our digital package. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Autosport podcast. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is waiting. Waiting for new thinking. For bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community. Working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality. Where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.